Hello and welcome back to Park It Here again. This is John Ryder with the Community Engagement Team with Loyal Parks and Recreation. Um, I'm here with Patty Lynn, who is the site manager at Riverside, the Farnsley Mormon Landing, uh, which is located in Southwest Louisville along the Ohio River. It's one of our two historic homes, uh, Historic Locals Grove being the other one. And also Teresa Lee, who is the volunteer coordinator at Riverside. And they've got a lot going on out there. Um, you know, like every other facility that we've got within Metro Parks and Recreation, uh, it's been impacted by COVID-19 regulations. But um, as we continue to sort of dig out from both the snow uh, and the impact that COVID has had, they've got some exciting things that are on tap for this spring and summer. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. So welcome you two. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having us. Um, Thank you. So Patty, let's start, let's start with you. I understand that you're working on developing some partnerships with Riverside um, and JCPS and have a couple of, of, of really interesting and exciting announcements that uh, that you'd like to lead off with by discussing. So go ahead, floor is yours. Well, uh, well, sure, we're excited because we recently received a grant from the National Trust for Historic Preservation to do a planning and educational project that we kicked off just, just three or four weeks ago um, with Central High School. And we're working with students um, who are um, joining us virtually at this point, but eventually we want to have them out here in person. And they are um, learning about the property, its history, and we're inviting them to basically help us do a better job of interpreting the stories of uh, African-Americans who lived and worked here as enslaved people back in the 19th century. Can you describe a little bit about what slave life was like at Riverside and what you've learned over the years? Well, I mean, much of what we've learned, we've learned through archaeology because we have a very active public archaeology program and it's been going on since the early 1990s and a large focus of the archaeology is to try to understand what life was like for those folks whose stories aren't necessarily um, in the written record. They are in the written record, but they tend to be in property records or, or legal proceedings and things like that. We don't, we don't we currently don't have any firsthand accounts really, except for some depositions in one legal case. So um, what we are trying to do is, you know, get at as many facets of that story as we can. And Teresa, um, that's really her area of expertise in a way. So she, she could talk to you some about, speak to your question there a little bit better. All right, Teresa, you're on the spot. So what, what have you learned since you've been out there in, through your research? Well, um, through my research, it, it's really hard. Um, slavery wasn't something that came into existence as this monolithic institution. That's really one of the things um, that, that made it so pernicious, honestly, was that it was, it was really adaptable. And um, I think for an enslaved person, um, to live here at Riverside, you know, to be to forced to work here and, and be across the river from freedom at, at a time when the river really wasn't the kind of barrier that we think of it as today. Um, kind of they, these people led very contradictory lives. Um, they were, they were people, their property at, at the same time. And it was, it was really kind of a balancing act for them. And it was about mitigating their everyday existence, but trying to exert their humanity at the same time. Um, yeah, so I mean, one of the, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Teresa, but one of the fasc fascinating things about our property is it is right on the river, right on that 
border, if you will, barrier, but also a potential passage to freedom and all the and and a, a super highway of information and ideas. So some of what we know through uh, court documents is that at least two enslaved men worked aboard steamboats and traveled, you know, maybe further than most white people had in the 19th century by virtue of being on this super highway. So it's it's just fascinating to try to learn more about. And one of the cool things about this project with Central High School is it's enabled us to, it's not just us interacting with the Central High School students. We have several scholars who represent institutions like the University of Kentucky, UofL, um, Western Kentucky University, and they are interacting with the students as well. So we're all learning through this process from one another. And it'll be really exciting to see what comes out of it. What we're asking the students to do is um, help us think of better ways, effective, impactful ways to interpret two slave dwelling sites that we know about through archaeology. And we have a little bit of signage up right now about them, and we certainly include them in our tours, but we know we can do a better job. And we're real excited to hear what young people think um, would be impactful ways and better ways to tell those stories. One other thing that I did want to mention about Patty, and I'm not sure if she's got it um, at arm's length or not, but part of the historical record of Riverside is a book that Patty Lynn has authored um, that she did for uh, Riverside's 25th anniversary of public ownership. Um, so uh, if you are interested, are you still selling those books there at the... Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So what was that like writing that book and, and doing the research for that as you were gearing up for the 25th anniversary? It was really fascinating, and I learned a lot through the process. In fact, some of the stories that we now are able to incorporate into the history of the lives of the enslaved, we learned because I had the luxury of taking some more time to do research for that book. For example, um, we knew that there was a family whose last name was Thomas was associated with the Mormon family when they lived here because someone was identified in a photograph as Kitty Mormon Thomas a couple of different times. And we can, you know, in census records and things like that. But eventually, um, my research led to the discovery, on our part anyway, that Richard Thomas had served in the United States Colored Infantry during the last year of the Civil War. And as a result, we were able to get his pension file from the National Archives. Wow. And suddenly, that opened up all sorts of, it was just a rich, it continues to be a rich source of information. So now we know a whole lot more about their family. And we learned about a whole other family through that because this couple gave depositions in support of Richard's, um, or actually his widow's, Kitty's, eventually petitioned for his pension from the army. And um, this couple gave depositions in her in support of her efforts. And we didn't know this about this couple before. So now we were able to do research on them. They were also enslaved here. Um, and in the late 1860s, you know, had started their family here at Riverside after the Mormon family moved here from Brandenburg. And we've discovered that three of their daughters became teachers in the Jefferson County segregated school system at the time for decades. None of them married. And um, they were very accomplished women. And one of them was actually the first valedictorian of the first graduating class of Central High School. Wow. So here we're doing this project with Central High School and the, one of the first graduates 
of uh, Central High School actually has a connection to this property. So that was pretty cool. That's amazing. Um, another, this, one, of, one of the sisters taught there for 40 years. And we discovered just this past week that she was a graduate of Fisk University in 1897. So wow. uh, we're still learning more. <laughs> so and their last name was Alexander. So that her name was Carrie Alexander. Uh, the first graduate uh, valedictorian of Central High School we discovered was Emma J. Alexander. And then they had another sister named Sydney Bell Alexander. And she was also a teacher for many years. So they've had a, you've had a working archaeological dig out there at Riverside for for years, but sometimes archaeology isn't just uh, putting a shovel in the dirt. Um, it's about uh, reviewing historical documents and, and, and doing research, uh, not something maybe people realize that's going on out there all the time. Um, let's uh, shift gears just a little bit. Um, I know, uh, like everyone else, over the last year, you've been impacted by COVID-19. Um, you haven't been able to do as robust pr of programming as maybe you would have liked, but uh, let's look ahead a little bit to this year. Uh, what are you looking forward to doing this year if things return to a new normal uh, to get people back to Riverside and make sure that uh, we see smiling faces and people learning out there? Well, Teresa can take this and maybe talk about some of our, um, we're calling them micro events that we're planning for the spring. Well, we definitely want people to be able to stay engaged and we want to do that safely. So we're offering um small micro events um we're doing a series of archaeology grounds tours um there will be one focused on the native american history of the property um the african-american history and just a general archaeology one um we will also um we have got some folks that are going to put on um a men and women's 1800s fashion show for us mm -hmm. um we just want, um, until we can gather the way um, we would like to, we'd like to offer people an opportunity um, to come out and enjoy the property and, and it's little samples of, of the great programming that we can offer. We'll probably also offer, I'm not sure exactly when, but last fall we were able to offer our public archaeology program on a really small scale. So as soon as the weather's more predictable, we'll do that again. And people can sign up to actually participate in the archaeology dig with the archaeologists. So um, it's a unique thing that we offer public archaeology on a pretty consistent basis. So Riverside is, is not unlike many of our other properties um, in, in our department as a whole, that we're always in need of people who want to lend a willing hand and volunteer, and they want to get involved uh, in what's going on out there. I know that Riverside has a very robust volunteer program uh the volunteer dinner that, that i believe was postponed last year is is the largest one that we put on in our department and i know it's a point of pride to, to you guys um but what can people do to help out right now and looking forward to this year teresa to if they're interested in coming out there and volunteering right now um gardening gardening and more gardening we um we are a 300 acre site we have um, a flagpole garden, we have our Jeannie Montgomery Memorial Garden, but we also have our historic kitchen garden, mm -hmm. which is where um, the Mormon family, most of what they ate was grown. And um, that plot is maintained by volunteers who use historic um, historic varieties of plants and historic planting and growing methods um, to recreate that. Um, and we would love, anybody who would love to be involved in some of our micro events or um, you know later on we, we have some 
things like our history on the move or our history on wheels. That's it. History <laughs> on wheels. Um, there are lots of ways people can lend a hand and still be safe. Let's just put it that way. And I'll tell you what, like with, with the snow in this, as we're, as we're taping this, we're in the middle of February, we just had eight, nine inches of snow over the last week and everything out there is covered up. I'm sure thinking about that kitchen garden in the grounds there that you're looking forward to spring quite a bit. If you have not followed uh, Riverside, the Farnsley Mormon Landing on Facebook, uh, you should do so. They they provide some of the most beautiful photos that you'll see of any scenery that we have within our park system and all of Louisville for that matter. Uh, so what is the, what's the uh, Facebook handle? Is it at Riverside Landing? Um, if they're interested in going. Yeah, 1837, I think, which is the year the house was built. Right. Um, so, so we went into this just a little bit. Can you, uh, if, if people are not familiar with this, uh, can you guys sort of describe what is on the grounds at Riverside? If someone has never been there before, what are they going to see if they come out there? Well, it's a 300-acre historic park right on the Ohio River. We're south of Louisville in River Miles. It's about 13 miles, and the centerpiece of the property is the 1837 historic home that we that was named the Farnsley Mormon House mm -hmm. for the two families that owned the house for the longest periods of time. Gabriel Farnsley, who lived there first, and later the Mormon family, uh, M-O-R-E-M-E-N. And the house is interesting because for lots of reasons, but. Um, we have a split interpretation in the house, which I don't think you'll see anywhere in this region. So the first floor interprets uh, the, the 1830s and 40s when the house was brand new and Gabriel Farnsley lived there. When you go upstairs, it represents 40 years later when the Mormon family were living there with three generations of their family. So that's, it's about sort of about change over time. And um, as you, um, Another interesting thing, obviously we're right on the river throughout most of the 19th century, there was an active riverboat landing here. So even though it seems like a remote place, this was tied to the wider world in a real, in a real direct way, especially in the 1800s, because that was, you know, a transformative, um, this, when the steamboat came along, this was a major thoroughfare and there was a lot of interaction with uh, people from all over potentially who might stop at the landing to take on boiler wood for those um, steamboat engines. So um, it's an interesting and different sort of story than a lot of the other, um, we have wonderful historic sites throughout Louisville. So we have our own different story from the rest of them in some ways. Um, the one thing that I also know, um, I keep on saying there's one thing that I know. There are a few more things than just one thing that I know. <laughs> with, with access to all that land, I know you guys do do, as Teresa mentioned, a lot of gardening out there. And it's also allowed you to form some partnerships with the I believe you're uh, the, the Kentucky University of Kentucky Extension Service. And then mm -hmm. um, you're also planning on doing, I believe, a, if if you can do it this year, I know you're trying to do a, a farmer's market um, out there as well. Um, talk about the uh, the farm a little bit, if you can, as sort of a, a, a food service provider, if you're looking at it in that respect as well. Well, I mean, and this the property is still actively farmed and that we lease some of the acreage to someone who does forage crops here so hay wheat as uh, hay alfalfa and that kind of thing and we do have a community garden on the property it is probably as far as i know the oldest community garden in jefferson county it actually opened as a community garden before the historic house 
and the site was open to the public. And it's still active. And the Jefferson County Extension Service, as you mentioned, helps us with the community garden, but we do a lot of um, programming with them in other ways. We usually do an event in June called Family Farm and Forage Day. And we've made the sad decision not to have the in-person event this year. We're going to do it virtually. But um, we feel like that's the safest way to do it this year. Um, but they are helping us with some of these smaller events that we're going to be doing in the late spring and early summer. So uh, sort of stay tuned for some of those. We're exploring the idea of doing a farmer's market. Yeah, back to your original question. Mm -hmm. And um, we are working. Jefferson Memorial Forest is also interested in doing that. We want to work in conjunction with them. And they're, they, you know, they manage a space um, called the, I don't know what they're calling it. It's the Fairdale Roundabout. Yeah. Sort of the entry, the I've heard it reference various ways, Fairdale Village Green, but yeah, it's it's the new roundabout that's in Fairdale. Right. And there's already sort of a farmer's market that just started there before COVID sort of shut it down. So they want to help support that as do we, and then we want to have something here and work together to promote each other's um, farmer's markets. And um, we want to have them um, probably if the, if this happens, it'll be late summer, you know, before that we kick it off in this year, just because of COVID. I think that's the safest way to do it. So we've, uh, we've had a lot of interest. We've had lots of meetings with various folks to see if we could pull this off. And I think we're, we're planning to do it if we can. One other major event that gets, a, gets a lot of attention, um, is the Derby brunch you have on the river annually. Um, is that, are you still looking to put that event on this year? Guess what? It, not this year, uh, but we're doing, we're going to have a brunch, mm -hmm. but we're moving it back as far as we possibly can in a year. So it's going to be a holiday brunch this year in December. Nice. We think that, um, we still news, need to, we, the news to Don G yet. <laughs> oh, I better do that before this airs. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, a, it's, that is a really fun event, but it's a fundraiser for our nonprofit partner. And in April, it just doesn't feel like we could have yeah. the crowd that we need to make it a successful fundraiser and do it safely. Mm -hmm. So we already um, we're hoping that everybody be ready to eat, drink, and be merry and get together by December. You know, more people will be vaccinated, and and um, you, that's the plan. It's going to be you, December fifth, and it have a totally different theme. It won't be a derby brunch. You mentioned your nonprofit board um, again. I know that um, you guys work closely with them, and it would be very hard for you guys to do what you do without that without that group and without your nonprofit board. Um, can you describe their activity and and what they've been involved in and how they've helped? Um, you guys sort of grow your programming and, and improve improve the grounds and the surroundings over the years. Oh, yeah. They've been a fabulous partner. I mean, the, their value is incalculable, I think. Um, they, um, they're they all the icing on the cake, right? Um, Parks does its part, but they make it possible to, for us to do long-range planning and capital projects. Um, one of the more recent, um, I guess, more ambitious projects was when we um, moved a historic chapel building to the property uh, in the like around 2014 and then renovated it and opened it up as a rental facility but it's also a programming space and there was 
also there was a new roadway put in as a result of that. So it expanded the public access to the property real significantly because um, out of the 300 acres, you know, people previously just had access to the areas around the historic home. But now there's a whole new section of the park that people can walk to or bike to or go have a family function at once we get the green light to go back to doing rentals and programs over there. So yeah, they do all sorts of things and they make a lot of these special events that we do possible too. Yeah. Right? It, 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 finding sponsorship. Yeah. And you'll see members of that board out there staffing these events while you're putting them on. Uh, correct. Yes. They're and the, many of them are active volunteers as well, which is fabulous. Yeah. So during COVID, I think you guys have repurposed some old farm equipment as well into a permanent exhibit. Can you uh, talk about that a little bit, Teresa? Sure, we had um, some farm equipment that was here on the property um, when the property was purchased, and it has been there and, and been been on on display for people to see. But we have um, turned that into a more formalized exhibit, and we've actually created some foundations for the equipment, and we will move that and label it so people will know what they're looking at. Um, and that's just one of the ways we've tried to take the opportunity that COVID has presented us with um, to, to utilize and, um, and, and really um, help people enjoy more of the property. And what will people see with as far as farm equipment goes and how is it different than, I guess, the modern farm equipment machinery that's being used now? Well, the majority of what we have um, would have actually been horse-drawn. You know what you might remind people that we're right on the loop of the loop? Yeah. So um, it's a great opportunity if you want to come out and explore and bring a bike or just bring your walking shoes and, and go for one of the nice, the nicer, walk along one of the nicer sections, I think, of the loop. It is right. And there's a trailhead there, is there not? Uh, yes, there is. So there's so you can actually bike that section of the Louisville Loop all the way from downtown Louisville, past Riverside, Farnsley, Mormon Landing to Bell's Lane. Um, I think the that stretch of the Levee Trail is about 25 miles. So you can get a good workout and see a lot of wonderful things. Maybe grab a bike to eat at Mike Lennings. Um, you know, it, there's there's just a lot to see. So thank you for mentioning that. That is very true and a good point. 